0: Hello everyone and welcome to Paranormal Roundtable. I'm your host Josh Turner and with me is my uh Esteemed colleague Anthony, good evening, everyone. And we are. This is the second uh, part to the interview with Christopher Garitano. Uh Welcome to a Thursday night edition of Paranormal Roundtable. Bringing you a bonus episode. Bonus episode here. Bonus, bonus, bonus. So, here, here's what we got going on. We still have tickets for the conference. We have to to uh, tell you about that. Uh, it is listed in Eventbrite. Or at Eventbrite, it's listed as Paranormal Roundtable Presents Second Annual Dogman Cryptid Conference. So go check that out. Get your tickets. There's going to be a ton of speakers there. I can't even name them all. There's Lyle Blackburn, King Gerhard, Nick Redfern, David Weatherly, Barton Nunley, Ron Murphy, Chad Lewis, D.A. Roberts. Uh, who am I forgetting here? Ron... Morehead. Morehead. Did you say Adam Davies? Adam Davies, Sibylla Irwin. It just goes on and on and on. There's a bunch of people going to be there and a bunch of people that aren't even listed on there. Martin Groves has agreed to go and speak. There's just going to be a bunch of people that are going to be at the conference. Uh, Christopher Garitano is one of them and so he's on the show tonight. Uh, don't forget also to like and subscribe and we have um, a whole lot of stuff lined up for you this this week, and this is the second day uh, the second podcast episode of the week. Yep, and we'll be back on Friday with the live stream. We did an impromptu live stream on Monday, um, and it ended up we ended up talking about alien abduction and ghosts and things like that. Check that out, and then we are going to be doing a live stream on Friday that starts at nine p.m. Central Time. Usually goes about three hours. And then we're going to do another one on Sunday. The one on Friday, we have a guest that's going to be Rick Atterstein, um, who's going to be talking about demons, angels, and other things. And then on Sunday, we're going to have uh, a, a show, um, a live stream without a guest where we talk about different subjects and stories and whatnot. Uh, believe me, we, we'll get into some, some stuff. We always do. Uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy it and have a good time. Uh, folks, if, if you go to the conference, though, don't forget. I want to meet each and every one of you out there, so if you're listening, don't forget, if you go to the conference, the VIP, you get an extra night. You get Friday night, and it's a a catered dinner, and you get to get more time. You get to sit and talk with the speakers, but if you can't do that, then that's fine. Go in and be there for Saturday and Sunday. Also, we have giveaways we do every time, like this episode here will be dropped on the Paranormal Roundtable group on Facebook and if you go and you uh leave a comment then you could be chosen to win a free autographed book from one of many authors like some some of the people we just named um and also if you send me a friend request on Facebook please remember to to tell me that you are a listener of the show otherwise i may not approve it and then also i am josh turner 940 on instagram remember josh josh turner 940 on instagram you can follow me on instagram And the last thing, uh, the Patreon. Yeah, it's patreon.com slash PRT podcast. Yep. $10 for three months, get you a swag bag. $20, immediately get you a swag bag. $30 a month, get you a super swag bag, which consists of two autographed books, a shirt and or hoodie um, or a cap, whatever. And, you know, and just, it's a good deal. And so if you like our our show, you want to rep the merchandise, we always throw in a bunch of extras like stickers and keychains and things like that. It's a really cool uh, deal for you there. We also have a new, on the live stream, we have a new $5 where you can become a member. We have
1: what's called a YouTube memberships. It's kind of like YouTube's version of Patreon, but we only have one $5 tier on there. And if you hit the join button, which is right next to the subscribe button, uh, it'll take you to where you can sign up. It supports the channel for five bucks a month. And if if you leave a comment down in the comment section, or if you join us for our live streams and you participate in the live chat, your name will stand out. Like it'll, it'll turn your name green and and it'll, it'll put like a little badge next to your name showing that you're a channel member. So that's just a, a simple, cheap, easy way that, that you can support what we're doing here if you if you feel so inclined.
0: Yeah. And donations are not expected, but they are appreciated. And and so anyways, folks, that's all we had to talk about. And then without further ado, we're going to get into it. Josh Turner of PRT Podcast.com, some of your stories. And let's get to our guest. I think living in this body, which is a three-dimensional prison almost, I think it would be <sighs> You know, I, I could take a thousand years. I think I could, you know, um, in the Dwarpa yuga, there's three yugas. I don't know if you know this. Uh, or there's four, I'm sorry. And in each yuga, which is a, it's just a, a cycle, it's like a cycle within a cycle. The the overall cycle is 4,320,000 years. But the first is the Satcha yuga. And people lived to be 100,000 years and they were like 40, 50 feet tall, whatever. Then they the people got smaller Okay. And the next was the the Treta Yuga. And morality also decreased by 25%. And people got shorter. They got smaller. Then you had the Dwarpa Yuga, which was the age before us. And it ended uh, only about 3,500 years, 600 years ago, something like that. I can't, I don't know the exact numbers. I have to look it up. But When you look at that life cycle, people lived to be a thousand years and morality was at about 50%. Now we're in the Kali Yuga and morality is said to be at about 25%. That means that one in four people is righteous and and everybody else is just either shades of gray or just an absolute dirtbag, according to the Hindu belief, okay? These are cycles of time though, but they seem to play out pretty correctly. And, And if you look at the Dorpa Yuga, it corresponds with the time of Noah and Methuselah, and of course they lived to be eight hundred years, a thousand years. People topped out at about a thousand years, and now where we're at now, in the Kali Yuga, people's lifespans top out at about a hundred, a hundred years, and that's actually correct. And when you look the Bible, it says in the Old Testament, which is like like I said, based on older, much older books, the information I believe is correct when it talks about that how old these people were. Because, and of course, we talked also about how if there was more oxygen, you would have larger beings. You'd have dinosaurs, you know, huge, huge creatures. You'd have megafauna, huge mammals, whatever. You would have more during the cycles of high oxygen and you would have large giant people. And then of course, you know, the lifespans change, you know, after so many thousands or millions of years. From you know the the Satya Yuga all the way down to where we're at now, it goes the the lifespans go from a hundred thousand years to a hundred years. So if you had the the people the Anunnaki and they created us, okay, let's say for argument's sake, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying what if, okay, you would look at them as gods, and their leader would be God to you, because especially if he could live to be. Don't even put it in hundred thousand years. Just put it in the ten thousand year category. If if he could, they could live to be that long, and maybe even expand lifespans with their sciences. You know who knows? Who knows how long? Because I know that you know eight Sumerian kings. You know supposedly lived. You know two hundred thousand years. When you're looking at the life cycle, you're going like, how is this possible? Okay, a lot of people say, well, those are the family dynasties. Not really. Because it already shows the lineage from where it went from one to the next. There is no other names that are thrown in there. So then people are like, well, that has to be wrong. No, because we're looking at it from the lens of the modern day, like you said. But I think that technology was much higher and much better than what we have now back in in millions of years ago.
2: Then if that's the case, I think some people have questioned, did some of this history exist on a different planet? You know, and that That we are now remembering all of our mythologies, us remembering what we were before. And now we're finally preparing to get back to where we were, if that makes any sense.
0: Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have posed that there was a planet in between Earth and Mars, because now we know that there's an asteroid belt there. And if you, I I just watched that movie uh, not too long ago, 65, uh, what's it called? Is it 65? 65 million years. I don't know. It's with Adam Driver. Uh, oh, t- I never heard didn't of it. See that. Yeah, I, I just it. watched it with my wife. Like, I'm not going to give it away. Like, like you know, but uh, it's pretty crazy. Like, when you go back and you look, and and of course, some of the dinosaur species were not exactly correct. The dinosuchus was pretty cool. They had some pretty cool, like, different stuff on there, you know. And I just thought, man, this is pretty. I'm going to have a guy come on my show pretty soon uh, named Max Hawthorne, who's an author, and he does paleo fiction. He's a really brilliant guy. Um, but it, 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 when he comes on, it's, it's, we're going to talk about some of these dinosaur species of the past and he's really into the whole, uh, ocean going predators and things like that. And it's going to be an interesting subject, but you know, it's really, I was watching that movie and I thought about it. What if that were to be real? Like, you know, 65 million years ago, a humanoid showed up on earth at that time, you know, like what would his perspective be on it now he has this m- modern weaponry that we could not even fathom that he can use to defend himself but you know if you were living back in that time and you were our size you would we would not have made it there is no way in heck we would have survived we were just big enough to be seen by these predators and we would be eaten in droves and we would probably be down to maybe <laughs> 5% of our population would be, you know, even going into the earth, probably not being able to survive because we don't know what, what to do or how to get, you know, there's just no way that it would happen. So then the dinosaurs get wiped out and then people are able to grow and live and, and become something. But if you were a giant, if you were large and almost the same size as these creatures and you had some super technology, then yeah, they're, they're, you know, it wouldn't even be a question. You could easily survive. Because if we had human-sized reptilians running around now, which people say we do, um, you know, if you had the technology, you could just blow them away. You wouldn't even have a problem. It'd just be like, oh, there's one of those lizards, you know. Um, that's kind of what would that's what would be happening. So it, it's always that thought-provoking, like the, the this stuff is put out there in a science fiction form because I believe it's more palatable. You know what I mean? If if you, if you, if you give somebody food. And you tell them, you know, hey, this is a a mountain oyster, right? And they don't, they're uninitiated. They're like, oh, this is pretty tasty. And then you tell them what it is. They're like, ugh. But, you know, they were enjoying the bull testicles until you explained it to them. Or It's like if if you serve them, uh,
1: they call it Chilean sea bass but the real t- uh, name for that fish is actually called a tooth fish. toothfish toothfish cuz it has human like teeth but they don't call it that cuz it's not like, who's going to want it oh, yo here's your toothfish sir oh yeah. yummy it has to-
0: human like teeth right <laughs>
1: uh yeah i think so
0: yeah so, so wow. w- w- when you sit there and you you look at this you know this stuff like when i told somebody about i had i had my friend my, my mom is was hispanic my my dad is white and my friends came over and matia one of my tias uh, actually made uh, manudo well if anybody knows what manudo is tripas and tripas is pig uh, gut you know and so who who the heck wants to eat that you know but it sounds all good when you put it hominy in there and you mix it with chile and my friend comes over and eats two big bowls of it and i told him i said he goes you don't eat this i said no i don't eat that i'm like 9 or 10 i'm not even thinking about you know i should tell him and then he goes, "What is this?" And, and Matias is like, "Oh, it's pork, you know, yeah, pork or beef, but it's still entrails, right?" And I told him, "I said, dude, I don't eat that stuff, man. I said that's 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 uh, pig intestines." He got freaked out. He ran to the bathroom, and started making himself vomit. Right prior to that, he'd eaten two heaping bowls of it, and I kept telling him, "I don't eat that. I wouldn't eat that." And I didn't want to say it too loud to be rude in front of my aunt. And I just figured, what's it going to hurt if he eats it? It's not going to kill him but I don't eat that. And and I just, and, and in our modern time, why, why would you, you don't really need to eat that. You know, sure. I mean, in a fajita, like there's this weird thing. A fajita is literally beef skirt and you know, it's a Mexican term. Um, but then people say chicken fajita. I eat chicken fajita all the time, but really what it is, is just chicken that's been seasoned as a fajita. It's not really fajita. Fajita is a beef skirt. And people don't really know that those are cuts of meat that are like poor cuts of meat for poor people. You know, poor people eat that kind of stuff and you just, you grow up on it, you're used to it. But when I got older, I was just like, "What? what is the purpose of this? What do we need this? Because we don't, we can afford to eat, you know, like a poor person now lives better than a king did in the middle ages. And when you look at this, like from different perspectives, you're like, oh my gosh. You know it's 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 so weird, and we're and everything comes full circle. There's nothing new under the sun, it says in the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything's been done before, and people think they discovered fire because they make a music video and they're like, "Look at me dancing like this." Okay, so you <laughs> took something that happened back in the '70s and you repackaged it, and now it's like you've discovered fire.
2: Yeah, well, I think perhaps the only way to to go forward in all aspects, whether it be art or expansion of the mind and body, soul is to allow it to happen. And a lot of people are afraid of that. That's why you keep getting the repetition. But I guess you have to be open to the ultimate evolution. And the question is, are you selling your soul if you incorporate all these biomechanisms into your body, or is there a way to do it through a pure expansion of the mind, through everything from research to life experience to something metaphysical?
0: I have a American. question for you, Chris, sure. about what you're talking about here. Now, you did a show called Strange World. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it when I first saw you on that show, I was blown away. I was blown away by your, by your intelligence, your professionalism, the way that you presented it. You know, you have a very like, uh, the way you present things is very like, I don't know. You have a voice that makes people want to listen.
2: Oh, I appreciate that,
0: man. You know, yeah, and and you did one on a video game called Polybius. You remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah. Doubt. Do you believe that that was one of the? This is the question for me personally, and I'd like to, you know, and the the, the fans and guests can listen in. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you believe that that was an early form of like a psyop or AI kind of coming? A hundred
2: percent, and it was real. Now. You know, you have this folklore, this urban legend of a video game that was allegedly installed with intention, a secret government program to start to affect and monitor children that are playing these video games for a long time. And then eventually it would be incorporated years later into the PS5s and everything else that the kids are playing, VR helmets. Okay, but you needed to start somewhere. Now, we talked to uh, Nolan Bushnell, who was the co-founder of Atari? I interviewed him in the show and you can see this episode. Now I did an episode of Off to the Witch podcast on Polybius as well. But if you look for the Strange World YouTube channel, all eight episodes of Strange World are on there. I uploaded them, whether I'm supposed to or not, I did it anyway. So, cause it's my show and I want people to see it. So, yeah. exactly. <laughs> perfect. Breaking the <laughs> Break all the laws. Anyhow, you can check it out for free.
0: And it's it's really good. Like it's a really good show. And and what attracted me, I watched all of it. And it was on I think it was on Destination America at that time, or maybe the travel channel. I don't know which yeah, one. Yeah, it, on,
2: it was on travel and then it was on Discovery Plus. And but it did play around the world, it did really well on Discovery UK and Detour Channel and Canada, which is the you know, collection of all of those channels and everything. But you know, in the States it was sold off to Great American Country, they bought it, and I guess he won Bill Abbott, the guy who owns it, who used to own Hallmark Channel, wants to use it for something eventually. But the worst part is it's my creation. And I took a paycheck for it. And because of that, I have no say in when it will be put out in the public again, yet I I put it out because enough is enough. You know, yeah, wait two years and it's just like, look, man, you ho- let me know when you're putting it out and I'll take it down. It's not monetized. I just want people to see it and you should be able to see it. So it's out there.
0: And you and I have talked about this and we were going to announce this too. Like you're coming to the conference. You're going to be at the conference. I want everybody to know that. But you and I have talked about doing a docu series. It's just something, yeah. We've kicked around, yeah.
2: Yeah, it'd be an anthology. Our first, our first chapter would be, uh, you know, feature length, uh, twenty minutes each chapter, and it could be a variety of the things that Wolf and I are talking about right now, uh, illustrated for you. We'll be interviewing people. Both of us have a lot of different contacts and connections in that world. Everything from weird science to strange and unexplained happenings and I think we should put an anthology an anthology together that represents those categories and if it's successful we'll do another one together.
1: Yeah I think anthology films right now especially right now are are in uh what's the term like when when a niche is not being filled oh okay I get what you're saying. Yeah.
0: It's Uh, needed. Yeah. It's needed. It needs to happen. Because if
1: you look at uh Tales from the Tales from the Hood Tales from the Dark Side, uh, Creepshow, like those were all really enjoyable, like fun movies.
2: They certainly were.
1: But you don't see movies like that anymore. They don't. They just don't come out.
2: A lot of the people don't know how to make them. And the thing is, you know, we grew up with those and we we love them. And I know what works and I know the beats that work. And then in this case, we can do something really unique because you have those cinematic, the beauty, and I don't mean hokey, like good cinematic recreations mixed with some honest, uh, interviews and perspectives and some powerful stuff. And when you're making a doc, something in the docudrama form, it's kind of like the sky is the limit. There are really no rules outside of tell a good story and don't make it too confusing and make it well. And, um, as long as we do that, it'll be strong. I mean, I'm sure we can do better than (laughs) do I have to name the shows?
0: I think oh, it's okay. all, I think it's all yeah. in vogue to me because yeah. it's in my mind all the time. I'm thinking this is cool because <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side, so all those anthologies were like pretty cool, you know, like Trilogy yeah. of Terror, you know, like all oh, those. yeah, Trilogy of Terror was that a That little one too. dude yeah. with a yeah. little spear. You know? I hated him so much. <laughs> yeah. little, I, I, I wanted to kill him myself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little yeah. duende yeah. is what it is, you know, and in Spanish uh, or uh, Mexican culture, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, in Spanish, you know, duende, but it's a, it's an evil little gnome like creature. They're not nice. They're, they're known to be, you know, murderous oh, they, and villainous
2: that thing from cat's eye or trilogy of terror, trilogy of terror. Well, both,
0: Okay. both. Yeah.
2: Now, Hey, have you heard of, have you heard of the Harlequin? A lot of people, and it's not the most talked about thing, but it's a phenomenon. And someone very close to me has experienced that when she was a girl, a little girl, um, the Harlequin. I've met several people, including a guy named Dex, who I interviewed. He he also experienced that, but he mainly talked about the black-eyed children. Um, the Harlequin is something that would come out of the wall and stare at kids, approach kids, smile at kids, and there are a group of now adults who have experienced that phenomena.
0: Yeah, it's like a clown-like uh, entity. Is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and but tiny, and it, and I felt that character in Cat's Eye was a representation of the Harlequin.
0: Wow, that that is interesting. I have gotten I have gotten a couple. St- okay, now I feel bad because I have gotten a couple stories about clowns, and in the early going, I got a, a really, I guess when we started our podcast back in two thousand nineteen. Was it 2019? Um, Yeah. We ended up, we had a guy who claimed when he was a kid that he was attacked and, and haunted and messed with by a clown. And I didn't, at that time, I wasn't, I guess, I know I'm not saying I matured in four or five years, whatever, but as a podcaster, I've learned not to throw people's stories out. I've just learned my lesson about that. And I thought, this is too far out there for me to be talking about, you know, because I thought, where is the precedent for this? Like, what is this? This is just a guy having nightmares, but then I, I, I got another story from someone who had very similar incident, and I talked about this one, I believe, on the show, where they were like at a carnival, wasn't it? They were at a carnival? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and this clown-like thing, it, was, it looked like a werewolf trying to stuff itself into a clown outfit, like it was trying to hide itself in a, in a clown, and it was terrifying.
2: So interesting. So interesting. See, look, so Stephen King is another one of those prophets. And if you read the book, It, the movies were okay, but the book is amazing. And in the book, this wasn't portrayed in the movies, that Pennywise is an alien who crash-landed during prehistoric times and has this ability to read, psychically read the fears of its prey. So, it takes the form of that. And that's what the Pennywise character is now. Some of these stories I'm hearing from people saying, "Hey, this is real," lends to the fact that all of this stuff just isn't. It isn't fiction, you know. And Stephen King, if you read The Mist, or I mean, that was very Montauk-like, you know, with the secret experiments and opening up doorways and all of these other stories. Everything from H.G. Wells to H.P. H. Lovecraft to Stephen King, these are These are visions being channeled from somewhere. You know, the information is coming from somewhere. And, you know, the horror fanatic in me is exhilarated at that and also terrified that we don't have a foothold in reality anymore. If we're going to say all of this stuff, yes, it's written as fiction, it's it's proposed as fiction, but we can find stories in real life where... You know, people who aren't essentially losing their minds swear to swear to us that these things are real. Even if, even if something as simple as like, I had a gentleman I was working in a little tiny construction crew some years back, and the head of this thing, you know, he had bought in some some raw clams and some beer, and we were chilling out, and he was telling me this story, and I and I was into all of this stuff back then, and I said to him, "Hey, man, do you ever see a ghost or anything in your life?" And he's like, "Well." Okay, so there was this one time, he's like, I was upstate, my buddies, we were at a cabin. We were drinking. Okay. I go outside. I I wanted to go get some fresh air. I walk over to the lake, and you know, he was taking a leak. And he looked out into the lake and he said there was this woman hovering above the lake. He's like, Man, I've drank a million times in my life. I've never hallucinated. Okay. Like, I'll pass out, but I did never saw anything like this and it was real and I don't know what it was this woman was hovering above the lake she was moving toward me and then she disappeared and he would you know when someone's telling you the truth like you could see it and it's kind of like that Bauman story that Theodore Roosevelt felt compelled to write in his memoir uh, about the guy who saw maybe it was a dogman that killed his friend why did Roosevelt write this anomalous chapter in his book you know Wasn't a popular thing to write about back then, Um, so these things are real. They're not fiction. They can be written as a fictitious perspective of something, but a lot of these things are very real. Hope I'm making sense.
0: No, no, I think, and I think Roosevelt—that actually happened to him, and he used Bauman as the uh, whatever pseudonym. pseudonym. Yeah, go ahead. That's
2: interesting. So he was maybe embarrassed to tell his own story at that time, so he wrote the. The Bauman story, that's,
0: that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and that happens to people. I've had people, in fact, I know, I'm not going to, I don't want to give people away, but I know a couple people who've written things in their own work, you know, and put it out there as someone else, but it happened to them, but they didn't want people sure. to know it.
1: That's actually yeah. a, a uh, therapeutic exercise that is used for people who, who have uh, gone through severe, severely traumatic experiences. It's used particularly with the, Children who, who've suffered uh, different forms of abuse. That's why, like, they'll, you'll you'll see kids in therapy with with those sock puppets. The therapist will talk to the sock puppet, and the kid will detail his traumatic experience through the sock puppet. Because then it's like I'm transferring all this trauma onto this external thing. I think it's the same concept. Writing about things that have happened to you under a pseudonym. It's like you're transferring all of that pain and all that trauma o- onto some external thing that is yes it's part of you but it's it's also not in your own in your own mind so it it probably it probably is something that helps people they get through the things that they've seen the things that they've heard that are just unexplained or that they just can't comprehend so speaking of fiction that's not fiction one of the glaring examples in my mind is uh stranger things which is which is based on the montauk project which you did an awesome documentary on, uh, Chris, called The Montauk Chronicles. For the listeners who are just hearing about this for the first time, can you put The Montauk Project in a nutshell?
2: Yeah. So, okay. So, I I, I heard about it, um, well, I had an experience there, an interesting experience when I was a little kid in the early 80s, but I did not know about The Montauk Project. And I'll get to that in a second. But The Montauk Project itself essentially is the story of several men who claimed that they were working in various capacity or were victims of a secret program that occurred deep beneath the Camp Hero Air Force Base in a place called Montauk, New York, which is the very furthest eastern tip of Long Island, New York, right on on the Montauk Point, okay, which is on the edge of the Atlantic. You can't go any further. You just keep going into ocean and ocean. So, um, and the, there's a base there. There's a now defunct Air Force station, and it has something called a semi-automatic ground environment radar tower, the Sage radar Tower, which peaks up through the many, many acres uh, when you're driving there. And so between 1971 and 1983, these gentlemen claim that they worked, not topside, which was a very lax unit. It was still in operation, but there wasn't really much going on. No, deep beneath the ground, there's a base that goes down many levels. And I read about it for the first time uh, in the 90s. There was a very thin book that came out by a man named Preston Nichols, who I later met. And the story goes that there were runaway kids that were recruited as human subjects for early mind control experiments. And what they claimed happened was that the kids were encouraged or kidnapped brought down they were drugged beaten with a technique that would fracture their current state of mind and would make them more susceptible to implanting suggestion that later they could be used for one purpose was venturian type candidate assassins in other words there would be a triggering mechanism put in after the trauma and then that mechanism could be a symbol or a word and if that word is said to them later that would trigger them to go and assassinate someone and they could be used as a patsy as a fall guy. Um, another purpose was to heighten psychic abilities and then there were other things also suggested that there were dimensional gateways being opened. There were um interdimensional beings that were released from these gateways and then there were technologies that were reverse-engineered Uh, from extraterrestrials all deep within this base. This was supposed to be, you know, a mecca of all of these different conspiracies that are now being talked about as real. And so when I first read it, I felt, just to be honest, that, that the small, the book itself was poorly written. So I, I wasn't really interested in it. I felt like it reminded me at the time and going back to fiction, the Dean Koontz book, Watchers, that is the Montauk story, okay? Uh, and he must have heard about it because I later found out there were other people talking about it well before Preston Nichols' book came out. So, perhaps Dean Kuntz, the horror writer, the fiction writer, knew about this because that's the Montauk story. Um, but the book that was written in the nineties cherry picked from some things. Forbidden Planet. Watch that movie. Uh, different episodes of, um, different episodes of Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, even Star Trek. There was a lot, you know, H.G. Wells. There was a lot of different Philip K. Dick stories. All of that stuff was kind of felt like it was thrown in there. So I, so later on, it was 06. Okay. I, I wanted to make. I wanted to make a really unique take on the Sasquatch stories and I still have it and no one's doing anything like it and I will do it one day. And it, it is, it's ultimately very unique and and um, I'm happy that no one has tried to do anything outside of, you know, a bunch of guys running around the woods rattling cans. So, it just makes a better opportunity for me to make this later. But I decided to do Montauk instead because a friend of mine who was really deeply immersed in this way of thinking at the time, which wasn't in vogue at all. Um, you know, it was really reduced to fringe people and fiction. And I was like, okay, so what would be interesting here is to talk to Preston Nichols, the guy that wrote the book and said he was there as a as a programmer, uh, to talk to Al Buick, who was the elder of the group, and start there because I loved stories where you know, you had a character in a in a movie that was this old man that had this elaborate tale to tell. And honestly, that was my interest. I was like, I need to start from scratch. I need to go to the source of the people who claim this thing is real and let's see what we discover. And at the time, I didn't believe in it or disbelieve in it. I, I was just open to hearing stories. And so, I started that way in 06. By the time 2012 came, I had a version of the film done and I had changed because – Now I'm starting to believe of several different possibilities. One of which was that the gentleman who claimed this happened, especially a lot of the alien and monster stuff at that time, I felt maybe they were given certain drugs. Maybe they were given DMT. Maybe they were, uh, their perspectives were obscured to cover up mass murder. And the mass murder was much more believable kids being kidnapped and used. In these very early experiments of mind control, later confirmed when MK MKUltra was revealed to be truth and when Alan Hornblum wrote a book called Acres of Skin about the Holmesburg prison experiments, which are tantamount to the things that have were said to have occurred in Montauk, at least the Montauk boys stuff, the, the assassin stuff, you know, the beatings, the drugs, fracturing the mind and implanting suggestion. All of this stuff, and there are those that believe that at least that portion of the of the experiments uh, have now come to fruition in these mass shootings. That people just kind of say, "Oh well, it's just another copycat. Oh, it's just another mentally disturbed person shooting people up." Well, if you really look into this, they, whoever they are, were creating people like that on purpose, not just not for warfare. For stuff like this, for whatever they were going to use it for. So a lot of the things that happened in the last three years, okay, mostly in the last three years, but even somewhat before that, Alfred Bielek told me these things in 06. And it's, I have been somewhat terrified since all of these things started happening because I didn't really believe him when he first said it. Then as I started to do my research and there were more things confirmed, there's a reason to believe. And just look at the things that have been confirmed, like MKUltra. So that's what the Montauk Project was said to be. It still to this day has not been 100% confirmed. I made a program for History Channel, which is a sequel to Montauk Chronicles, which is the documentary we're talking about, uh, called The Dark Files, two-hour special for history. I'm astonished that they allowed us to make this. We brought geophysicists to the ground, And they used something called electric resistivity imagery, which basically were a bunch of these uh, these large spikes that would be hammered into either the asphalt or the ground. And all we got, because they were really, the, the the parks department, were really putting up a big resistance. They did not want us going near the actual tower itself, the perimeter where the base is supposed to be. But from one vertical slice, I would say about 50 yards of this test short test and we kind of did it you know we we did it as quick as we could because we were restricted at that point they were really worried we were going to find something and there's more to this but mike at geoview who was a geophysicist found a vertical slice of an enormous man-made structure and elements of iron ore underneath the ground that proves that's rebar that proves there's a man-made structure where they said there was nothing there was nothing there and these weren't these archaic World War II tunnels, this was something different. And that if we could just simply get the same equipment down there and work our way for, let's say, days from the perimeter around the actual SAGE radar tower to where we actually conducted the test, I guarantee you, the first thing you can prove is that there's an enormous underground base there, for sure. Um, But I'm I'm going on and on about this. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer.
0: Well, one of the things I was going to ask is like, I've heard this before from like, it's called Dulce. Like, I don't sure. know. Yeah. If you've heard of Dulce, I mean,
2: I have, I heard about it from Alfred Bielek again. And now I consider all the things he told me as as a possibilities of truth because so many things he said came true.
0: Yeah, it was true. And so when when you look at Dulce, you know, th- there, there have been all kinds of eyewitnesses who've claimed to have worked there, people that have escaped and claimed that they, Saw reptilians and they saw dogmen, werewolf-looking creatures, uh, winged-looking creatures. And we here at PRT, we get these stories of these entities all the time. Like, I mean, I just – yesterday I was talking to a researcher. This guy was a – basically a biologist. I mean he had no reason to lie and his life took a, a different turn. He went to a foreign country to help some people. He was from South America himself, but he went to a for another foreign country that was in turmoil. Got kidnapped, uh, found God, became a missionary. Got got released, basically. And let's put it this way: he got released, and then he found God. Then he returned and got kidnapped again. And it's a crazy story, but you know he talks about having seen uh, this this winged entity you know in the river when he was a young man and then later on he saw it standing there looking at him on the top of a church uh in Nicaragua and you're sitting there going like this is a crazy story i haven't told it on my show yet so i'm going to say i'm going to say much more about it but it was unbelievable and he said what are the odds of me seeing it as a 15 year old boy you know in july you know uh, uh, like a week before his birthday and then he's like i saw this thing again you know 25 years later you know and it was just like <clears throat> it's a very compelling like what are the odds that he saw that and both times he had people with him he had his two brothers with him which he's the youngest of uh, of those three there's four brothers and he's when he saw it in the water in El Salvador and then years later in Nicaragua and he sees the same what looks to be the same type of creature and he's like, I said, you think it was the same creature? He said, I don't know, I, you know. And then I go and I start looking into these reports of Dulce, and I get one that's just identical to that thing, like what he saw. And I'm like, wow, you know, those are threads. Those are threads that I pull all the time, and and, and when I get these reports that are around that area of these flying winged. Demonic looking kind of like we were talking about earlier with the, the the movie Gargoyles, you know, and not the cartoon with Goliath and all that, um but but the actual movie, you know like it, it looked like that, you know, kind of like this wow. demonic thing with wings, and before anybody would roll their eyes and go, Well, this is crazy, how many have we gotten reports of like that, Anthony probably thirty, yeah, a whole lot of them, a whole lot of them, and so you're sitting there going like, okay, this is probably real." you know, the reptilian thing, same thing. Tons of werewolf, dogman reports, vampire looking creatures. I mean, nobody's can say, well, that's a vampire, that's a werewolf, but that's what they're describing. And they're, they're describing them in droves. Now, somebody asked me the other day, and maybe you can give me some insight into this, Chris. Somebody said, well, do you think these reports are ramping up or is it just because we have the technology now, you know, to, to, you know, whatever. And so, I answered it like this. It's analogous to like eBay. And what I mean by that is I, I collected cards and comic books when I was young, like a lot of people in our generation did. And then they produced too much of it. And it all ended up being not worth anything because of the eighties, whatever was made in the eighties to the early nineties. And it was just overproduced. But we didn't know that at the time because we didn't have eBay, you know, now it's changed how people collect cards or comic books or coins you go onto eBay and you kind of see what the price is. You don't need a Beckett price guide to tell you that a Mickey Mantle card is worth da-da-da because you could just go on eBay and if somebody's trying to flip one, you can see what it's going for. It's only worth what somebody's going to pay for it, right? So when you go back and you look at these uh, stories, when we were younger and people were, you know, we got these stories out of books, people like Frank Edwards, you know, these really strange stories or you read them in science fiction. Like it was like, you know, a science fiction, you know, like I read fate magazine or you read Philip K Dick or whatever. And you would be like, oh, okay, so this is, you know, whatever, Th- this is just this story, you know, it's a strange, stranger. you know, whatever, strange stories. When you start looking at these, uh, you know, whatever, like from, 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 na- from then until now, the way that we do research and the way that we can, we can cross check and do all this other stuff for these stories, you go back and you find b- more and more reports. Yes, it does seem like there are more and that there's more of it. If you looked at eBay, you'd think, man, there's way more uh, vintage baseball cards floating around than there were when I was a kid. No, they're just more accessible. You can go and buy a Roberto Clemente or a Sandy Koufax or a Mickey Mantle, and you can find it on eBay you know, in any condition. Whereas when I was a kid, you'd have to you'd have to go far and wide and go to these card shows and yard sales. Maybe you'll stumble across some some vintage stuff, you know, whatever. It was rare. Well, same thing with the stories and reports. Back when we were kids, what did we have? We had books. We had to go to the library. We had to read time life books about this stuff. And and you thought, well, there's not that many stories out there. Well, because you only had so many authors, but now with the advent of the internet and, and, you know, the modern technology that we think so highly of, you know, as a society, we put it up on a pedestal. Yeah, it gives you the ability to get hundreds and process hundreds of these reports. We get a report. What do we do? We look at it on the email. We put it in a file under whatever title, right? Yeah. And then we go, and we pull it and say, this is going to make a good show. And then we do a show and then it becomes popular.
2: But that raises more questions it, or the essential question that was that done on purpose because those were all put out by very uh particular publishing companies time life um, yep. you know I have some smaller I, I still have all the books I had when I was a kid on this on different subjects, but you're right, you had to establish establish yourself as an author. there were, very rarely was there self publishing back then. Mm-mm. You needed a publishing company now. Anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can publish a book. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, look, if the book's garbage, then, you know, it's garbage, but at least it opens up possibilities for us to hear stories that we'd have, we would have never heard. And does that lend to the changing and for and f- changing of one era and the forging of a new one? The fact that now we can communicate and were we prevented from communicating on purpose? And now, are we allowed? Why are we allowed to do it now? There's so many questions. But or did we yeah. break free? Yeah, or did we break free?
0: Because you're you're one of those people who's been on the forefront of, I believe, and on the verge of changing things again and and another paradigm shift. And I just think that your your dedication and your passion is is one of the things that drives me. That that's why I wanted to work with you. And I thought, you know, if you and then some of the things we've talked about you know like i said we're children from the 80s we you know we were we were born in the 70s we we were raised up in the 80s and like you said you know was it done on purpose i always wondered why is there so much limited information on this stuff and then when it started coming out you know years later cuz when i was 15 and i saw the dog man thing whatever it was werewolf whatever this thing i was in 1990 you didn't you didn't just go jump on the internet and go oh look there's been hundreds of these reports. Oh, it's, what, it's right there, you know? No, I mean, you just were like, dude, you had to find other people who had seen it. You had to go and you had to you had to really get after this information. And, and I wrote all these things down in journals and then, you know, 10, 15 years go by and you're like, dude, it's everywhere. Like you can find it anywhere on the internet. And I'm just like, I feel like, oh, wow, I wasted all this time just trying to write all this stuff down. And now it's so readily accessible and readily available and anybody can do it. The problem there though is that anybody can do it because then everybody's doing it and it kind of waters it down. And then you have to, you have to go through the muddied waters of all these people who I believe are subpar researchers who give themselves the mantle of, I'm a researcher. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm an air breather. I mean, so is everyone else. I mean, you know. (laughs) Whoopie doo just because you can doesn't mean you should.
2: I mean, it's, it's that, well, you know, I'm a filmmaker and it's that way in the world of movies. You know, anyone, everyone has a camera in their hands. And if someone does something brilliant, I'm happy. You know, I, I, I don't feel like there's any competition. Just make your light as bright as possible. And you have. You've got a larger audience than most people trying to achieve one, whether they be charlatans or they're really just trying to tell a story. And some people can't, they don't have the ability to tell a story, yet they have a good one to tell. And so, um, you know, I'm a listener and I'm a storyteller and uh, I've had a few of my own experiences, but mostly I'm I'm interested in writing these things as fiction, but it's exhilarating to think that some of this stuff is real, you know? And um, I uh, I think we live in an extraordinary time. It's just learning how to embrace it. And yes, this is a wonderful time to change things too, because again, I, um, I've made shows for networks. They were financed by networks. You know, they weren't financed by an uncle or a, a weird outfit of people. Yet I'm excited about also working with people from the underground who want to invest. It, it just, you got to be very careful. Um, but I have a new show that I'm making and it's, you know, each chapter is nurtured in their feature length. And the first one comes out in October and it's called. A haunting. We will go now. I chose an oversaturated subject because I'm going and have I already shot it. It's in post production, and I'm portraying it in a very different way, unlike anyone has on any of these networks. And that was something I wanted to do. Um, and you can't do it within the network system. So as as fancy and as wonderful as you think that achievement might be, they sometimes dis- they'll bury great shows and continue to perpetuate stuff that I guarantee that no one's going to watch in 10 years. No one's going to go back and watch 57 seasons of the most repetitive show ever made. And whatever that whatever show that is, apply this definition. You know, do you think anyone's going to go back and watch that stuff? Nobody's going to go back. I don't think anyone's rewatching them now. You you have to be nearly brain dead to see that stuff over and over again. So, it's a great time in other words to to make your light shine to create something new. And that's up to you how you're going to forge that.
1: I think that independent media is one of the most important ways. is one of the most important things right now pertaining to this subject in particular, the paranormal, cryptid, abnormal, weird, what have you. Because this whole sphere of information has been something that's been stigmatized for a long time. But the thing is, the more independent media is of is Available to consume on this subject, the less it becomes stigmatized. The less it's stigmatized, the more independent media is created for these things. It's like a self perpetuating cycle, the end result of which produces more and more and more information. I think you're totally right that this is, uh, this is like the right time to to be learning about these topics and make and creating media on these topics.
2: Yeah, because the playing field, just like you said too, then the playing field is, is level now. In other words, it's not a taboo to tune into an independent designer of these type of programs or these movies. People are actually excited for them because they're really honestly, I think a lot of people are sick of being controlled and being fed the same thing over and over again. That's made by a committee. Who They're just trying to validate their paychecks at the end of the week. And so, what Wolf said before is that you get more passion and uh, intent and and research goes into these independent productions. Not all of them. You know, I've seen some that are just as bad because they're aping the stuff on TV. And that's the biggest mistake if you're an independent designer of these shows or movies or literature or whatever. Stop trying to ape the stuff that the networks are doing, because what you become is the brand X version of that garbage. So it's like, you need to do something fresh and be bold, do it. You know, that's up to your imagination. So,
0: Yeah. I had a, I had a question for you, Chris, and we were talking earlier. What are your thoughts? Like, okay. Kind of switching gears here a little bit, but going back to what we said earlier in the conversation, we talked off air. I know about the, like, like okay, art imitating life, life imitating art. And one of the things that I found intriguing was that, that Aliens, you know, Ridley Scott, he did Aliens, or he did the Alien movie. And he kind of like was the, the you know, he used like like the visuals of Geiger, H.R. Geiger, Hans Rudy Geiger. And, you know, the inspiration for his Aliens was Geiger's work. But Geiger himself, you know, had admitted that a lot of this came from his own nightmares. Like, it was like, you know. So There's you know, Morph
1: in particular, uh, he said, came from directly from a nightmare. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. Well, even Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the screenplay for Alien, when he met uh, Geiger, he offered him opium. So, the guy was, he, you know, he was a great artist, but he was, he was doing opium and then those visions would come to him and maybe he fell asleep and had more, you know, but he was, he was enhancing that and he would go deep into his paintings that way. And, um, you know, he said that they were, they were, they were, maybe he was channeling them like every other artist or author or filmmaker or writer, you know.
0: And he thought they were like sort of a sort of demonic, uh, you know, cause they were nightmares, you know, but if you look at. You know the rumor is like like I don't know you know the validity of it, but George Lucas, of course, he he studied was he, he studied USC, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and and he was supposedly he hung out with Timothy Leary, and Leary, of course, was dro- drop in dro- what is it drop out? I forgot what oh, the same was.
2: I think he was a uh, he was a government plant.
0: Yeah, well, he he had th- th- he would take LSD. Mm-hmm. You know, and he would tell other people to to tune in tune in or tune out drop in drop out tune in whatever whatever tune out whatever his saying was <laughs> you know and and the, it's been brought you know up before that Lucas got these ideas from that, like he was at u s c as a filmmaker, and the whole idea of the force came to him you know kind of as a uh I don't know. You know, like he, he took the, the rumor. That's a rumor. I'm not saying this is what what happened. Here's
2: an interesting connection. So, have you ever heard of Alejandro Jodorowsky?
0: Uh, no, I don't believe
2: so. so. There's a do- All right. So, easy way to refer to him is find a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune. Okay. Now, Jodorowsky had made a movie called The Holy Mountain, which is metaphysical insane movies and El Topo well before Star Wars. And the documentary tells the story. Now his team was comprised of Dan O'Bannon, who I just mentioned, H.R. Giger, a whole bunch of people that went on to these much bigger movies. Okay. Like Alien and Star Wars. All of those guys were, were Jodorowsky's team and he was supposed to adapt the first adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. And it was happening. And Jodorowsky had taken acid LSD to expand his mind twice. And then he said, I want to make a film that expands the mind of its viewer like LSD did to me. And so, he embarked on this insane journey to make Dune. And looking at his previous film, the movie would have been off the wall. Pink Floyd was hired to do the soundtrack. Salvador Dali was playing the emperor. Orson Welles was playing Baron Harkonnen. I mean, it was nuts. Um And so, they created the makers, you know, Jodorowsky and team. And these are serious designers. I mean, they went to Douglas Trumbull, who did the effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey. All of these people are on board. And every studio got a copy of their production art book and their screenplay. And it has now since been established that not only Lucas, but everybody with a 100 films going forward, including Alien, Blade Runner... Tron they felt that Jodorowsky's dune, all of his plans his storyboards, his art, and his ideas, broke into a thousand pieces and became all these other movies and influenced everybody and they they found you know identical scenes from their storyboards in Star Wars and other movies going forward, Flash Gordon, you know. Yeah. But what an amazing influence this man had. It's funny that you mentioned the expansion of the mind because it started with a man who to this very day, he's alive now. He's 95 years old and he's making this new movie. <laughs> yeah. Amazing guy. I got to look um, this
0: up, man. That's-
2: yeah. yeah I, I've
1: never heard of him. That's interesting.
2: So your first introduction, just watch uh, Jodorowski's Dune, the movie. It'll, it'll blow you away.
0: Folks, that's all the time we have for tonight with Chris Girtano. We'll be back with Chris uh, next Thursday for another bonus episode, a Thursday night special edition of Paranormal Roundtable. Be sure and tune in. We hope you enjoyed it. I know we certainly did and had a good time. Uh, Thank you and good night.